Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast is a copyrighted production of Radio America and is not intended for broadcast. The freedom of a people to choose its leaders is the root of liberty. Keep alive this experiment in liberty. Liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. Government should be very minimal in protecting liberty. Peace cannot be purchased at the cost of liberty. The sturdy ground of liberty. Liberty once lost is lost forever. Fight for their liberty and for our security. Guarantees individual liberty. This great republic born alone in liberty. 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 Just how much do you want liberty? This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Cutting through the double talk. Taking on the topics. Going after what the politicians really mean. And making it all clear. For your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. And welcome back to Liberty Nation. And today we'll be joined by the man at the center of the controversy about the Clinton Foundation, Peter Schweitzer, author of the just-released book, Clinton Cash. He'll be joining us in just a bit. Politics makes strange bedfellows, and in the bitter partisan atmosphere of Washington, we've witnessed some actual bipartisanship in recent days. I know it's hard to believe, but we will explain We'll hear Hillary Clinton tacking far to the left and completely changing her position on illegal immigration, plus the rather feeble attempts by her husband to explain away the Clinton Foundation crisis. And Hillary finally gets a Democratic challenger. We'll consider whether he has any chance of gaining traction. And we'll top off the show with a discussion of a federal court ruling that the NSA mining of all Americans' phone records is illegal, plus some other trending topics affecting your liberty and chewing the fat with constitutional lawyer Scott Cosenza of One Generation Away found on the web at onegen.org. That's O-N-E-G-E-N dot org. Well, we've seen lately rare bipartisan and even strange bedfellow stuff going on in Washington by an activist president and suddenly energized Congress that's actually asserting itself for the first time in recent memory. Consider that congressional Republicans are now, wait for it, working hand-in-hand with the Obama administration on giving the president fast-track authority for the massive Trans-Pacific trade deal, which means in layman's language that the Congress, both houses, can't make any changes to the trade agreement and can only accept or reject it, the deal encompassing a rogues gallery of a dozen nations from North and South America and Asia plus Australia and New Zealand, Mitch McConnell called working hand-in-hand with Obama an out-of-body experience. But what this shows is that sometimes, not nearly as often as we might like to be sure, policy trumps politics. In this case, the Republicans feeling so strongly about the benefits of free trade that they welcome the chance to work with a president of opposite ideology on this particular issue. 
Likewise, when it comes to the Iran deal Obama's trying to get done, there have been many Democrats willing to publicly oppose their president instead of just following the party line because Obama's in their same party. Then there's the court ruling on the NSA surveillance program, an appeals court ruling the NSA spying on every single American by monitoring our metadata is illegal. Illegal in that it is not authorized in the Patriot Act, though they did not rule it unconstitutional. So the constitutional fight about Fourth Amendment privacy protections under NSA remains to be fought. But all of this, thanks to Edward Snowden, who you can love or you can hate, you can call him a hero or a traitor, but it's undeniable that we would not know nor care about the NSA mining the phone records of you and me and every single American, were it not for Mr. Snowden, who must now feel truly vindicated by both the court ruling and by how much Americans seem to care about the, the, uh, the issue that he essentially gave up his freedom to bring to the public's attention. But here's the thing. Libertarian Rand Paul and leftist Harry Reid, among others, both issued statements celebrating the court ruling. Of course, many other Republicans, from John McCain to the ascendant presidential candidate Marco Rubio, pretty much decried the ruling, but many in the GOP did welcome it, as did many in the Democratic Party. Point is, seeing politicians allowing their ideology to trump pure partisanship is rare, but refreshing. More precisely, it's what the voters expect when they vote these politicians into office. And we'll discuss the ramifications of the court ruling on the NSA surveillance program later on with constitutional lawyer Scott Cosenza of One Generation Away. But with four more candidates announcing for president in recent days, I wanted to also discuss for a moment the dynamics and a different viewpoint than you've mostly been hearing, whether you agree with it or not, about the ever-expanding presidential race that's shaping up With the addition of four more candidates just in recent days, three Republicans, long shots Carly Fiorina and Ben Carson, and the old standby Mike Huckabee, plus one Democrat, Bernie Sanders, over the last few weeks, as the Clinton email and Clinton Foundation scandals were unfolding, and the Foundation scandal still unfolding, as we'll discuss with the author who put the story front and center, Peter Schweitzer, when he joins us in our next segment, One of the main storylines about all this has been how badly has Hillary's presidential candidacy been damaged by these scandals. And while her numbers have gone south among independents while remaining steady among Democrats, there are some numbers crunchers out there who say it won't ultimately make any difference one way or the other. Now, here's what I mean. There's a school of thought that the actual background and history of presidential candidates no longer really matter, that it's just a numbers game, a demographic game, a turnout operation game. Much like the so-called sabermetrics that spawned a whole generation of baseball enthusiasts who believe the game can be reduced to a matrix of probabilities and tendencies and wins above replacement and the like, the numbers are all that matters in the so-called Nate Silver mindset. Now, Nate Silver, you may recall, is the ascendant statistical analyst and quasi-odds maker who claims to be able to predict outcomes of everything from sporting events to presidential elections by simply crunching the numbers 
and he's been about as successful in doing that as anyone. So the thinking goes that in 2012, it demonstrated that even low enthusiasm candidates, which we should remember is what Obama had become by the time he was seeking a second term, can still win with a proper ground operation, the kind of brilliant get-out-the-vote strategy that Obama employed with his cyber geeks, luring his voters to the polls in big numbers and defying the conventional old-school metrics that seem to be working against him, like the size and enthusiasm of crowds at his campaign events as the election approached. Romney seemed to have the big advantage with increasingly large and enthusiastic crowds compared to the relatively bored and tepid crowds at Obama events. And Romney still got beaten badly, losing by 126 votes in the Electoral College because millions of potential or likely Romney voters simply didn't vote. So the argument in these number-crunching circles is that all these scandals surrounding Hillary Clinton won't, won't ultimately amount to more than a hill of beans if her campaign can, like Obama, identify her voters and get them out to vote. Remembering that an unenthusiastic vote counts exactly the same as an enthusiastic one. Remember one thing that most people seem to forget or perhaps not know in the first place regarding those treasured independent voters that we've long been told are decisive in every election. Mitt Romney won the independent vote by 5% in 2012 and still lost the election by more than 3%. The lesson is that if you get your people to vote like Obama did, you win. Or fail to do so like Romney, you lose, no matter what the independents do. So before you write off Hillary because of all these scandals, remember that she'll be following the Obama turnout model with a campaign war chest that'll probably be the biggest ever, two and a half billion bucks if she meets her goals. And that by itself can get an awful lot of people to the voting booth. We're going to take a quick break now and then return to talk with Peter Schweitzer, author of the controversial and much ballyhooed new book, Clinton Cash. A reminder that the podcast of Liberty Nation is available from iTunes and other fine podcast providers. We'll be back. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. For your freedom and your liberty. There will be no liberty while we're in this here court. The sturdy ground of liberty. Liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Well, it's the book that everyone's been talking about even weeks before its official release this week. With its damning revelations about Hillary Clinton and her husband and daughter who operate what was then called the Bill Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, Clinton Cash, the untold story of how and why foreign governments and businesses helped make Bill and Hillary rich. And the author, Peter Schweitzer, joins us now. Mr. Schweitzer, many thanks for jumping on board today. Oh, glad to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Now, you obviously thought there was enough, uh, shall we say, noteworthy in the Clinton Foundation to justify years of work and ultimately writing a book on the subject. So how would you compare what you discovered with what you honestly expected to discover? 
You know, we started this a year ago and um, weren't sure what we were going to find. It's like any investigative project. You just wonder what what you're going to uncover. Pretty quickly, when we discovered that there were hidden, you know, multi-million dollar uh, contributions going to the Clinton Foundation that they were supposed to reveal but they didn't, uh, we realized pretty soon that uh, that there was a lot here that that needed to be explored and investigated. And uh, you know, so pretty early on, we realized there was some uh, some stuff going on here that needed to be exposed. Now, you've done other books that take on both Democrats and Republicans, but you are a self-professed conservative. So were you surprised when the establishment media, specifically the New York Times and Washington Post and then others, quickly picked up on your book and actually asked you for the rights to release parts of it in advance of its release this week? And did you envision your book having the kind of mainstream impact it seems to have had? I did to a certain extent because, uh, you know, there's some reporters that had done reporting in this area in the past uh, that I knew, uh, and I reached out to them. For example, at the New York Times, you had a reporter, Joe Becker, who had written a report in 2008 on this uranium deal uh, in Kazakhstan involving Bill Clinton and this Canadian financier, Frank Justra. We actually took that story built upon it and extended it. So it was only logical when we found this explosive stuff in that story that we would go back to that reporter and say, hey, this is where the storyline continues. Uh, and of course, they were interested in pursuing that. Um, I do think that in the, in the media, there's a lot of uh, frustration and skepticism about the Clintons, that they are not, uh, they don't shoot straight with the media, uh, and that this stuff needs to be investigated. Now, how could the Obama administration have agreed to allow any foreign contributions to the Clinton Foundation? How is that not prima facie, sort of on the face of it, automatically uh, a conflict of interest? I just don't understand how these foreign contributions could have been permitted in the first place while Hillary was Secretary of State. Well, there was certainly a lot of controversy about that in 2008. I mean, you had uh, publications like the Washington Post saying the Clintons should not take any foreign money. You had people on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the Obama tr- uh, transition team and President-elect Obama, when they picked Hillary Clinton, at least placed some conditions on them. Uh, they allowed them to take foreign donations, which I think was probably a mistake. Uh, but they said, look, you at least need to disclose all of them. Uh, but as we point out in the book, and has been been confirmed now by the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, they started violating that agreement with President Obama almost immediately. They got donations a few months after that that they never disclosed, and it has continued to the point that there are now more than a thousand contributors who have sent millions upon millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation that they never disclosed. I mean, it's, it's a shocking slap in the face of President Obama, the American people, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We're with Peter Schweitzer, author of the acclaimed book, Clinton Cash. Now, Mr. Schweitzer, much has been made of the fact, particularly on the left and and among Clinton apologists, that you offer no evidence of wrongdoing. But given how this foundation operates, is, is it even possible, absent extreme clumsiness, to prove wrongdoing in the type of apparent pay for play quid pro quo series of transactions that your book details? Well, I think here's here's what we have to do is we have to look at what is the standard that we've applied to other political figures. Uh, you look at uh, Governor McDonnell in, in Virginia. You look at Senator Menendez in, in uh, New Jersey. You look at the governor who resigned in Oregon, Kitzhaber. There was no quid pro quo in those cases. 
there was a flow of funds and there were beneficial actions that were taken. But the Clintons and their allies have tried to create this impression that um, if there's no quid pro quo, there's no wrongdoing. Uh, and that's just simply not the legal standard. Uh, and so, you know, my thought is, I know it's a radical one, we ought to hold all political figures to the same standard. And I think the fact pattern established in this book, the stories and narratives in this book, are far more troubling than in any of those three other cases. And that's why you need to have a serious criminal investigation to look into this stuff. Now, you've likened this whole situation with myriad suspicious dealings, but no single damning piece of evidence about the Clinton Foundation to insider trading, which was the subject of your last book, Insider Trading in Congress, and how prosecutors, um, how they've generally been able to convict inside traders over the years. How is the comparison work there? Well, I think the comparison works because most insider traders um, that get caught and prosecuted, they didn't send an email to a friend that says, I've got this great stock tip, buy this stock tomorrow. I mean, I guess there's probably a few dumb ones that do that. But mostly they get, they get caught because they have access to inside information. And when you look at their stock trades, they just have this incredible timing. They always seem to guess right. And that's what prosecutors will use to go after insider traders. And people get convicted on that all the time. And my point is similar here. You can say that, okay, money flows to the Clintons, and then Hillary takes favorable action to those who sent them the money. You can look at a couple of examples and say, okay, well, it's just coincidence. That's just bound to happen. But when you see it occurring over and over and over and over and over again, you quickly realize that, no, there's something more going on here. This is not coincidence. This is a pattern. Let's focus on one of the deals that's become one of the major takeaways from your book, the deal that allowed a Canadian company that donated over $3 million bucks to the Clinton Foundation to sell their uranium company to Russians. Now, the State Department was one of only nine U.S. government agencies, one of nine that had to approve the deal, but any one agency could exercise a veto. Did you conclude that Hillary's State Department implied or threatened that they would veto the deal but might be inclined to approve if the Canadian company dug deep into their pockets to the tune of, what, over three million bucks? Well, what's interesting is that um, the, the, the timing and the flow of money. There's actually eight, uh, sorry, nine individuals who contributed, who are connected to this company, who contributed to the Clinton Foundation, and the total take was $145 million. Wow. The $3 million you're referring to is one of the donations that was not disclosed. But you're talking about $145 million, and what makes this troubling is not only this massive conflict of interest that her agency agency is approving a transaction involving a company that has sent her foundation $145 million. It's that Hillary Clinton has a past and a reputation for opposing precisely these kinds of deals. She's been very hawkish on foreign government entities owning strategic industries in the United States, and yet... When it came to this transaction, she didn't have a problem with it. And that's what I think is so troubling. The amount of money and the fact what her previous history was leads me to conclude that this needs to be investigated. Thank you, Mr. Schweitzer. Many thanks for joining us and casting light on this troubling situation. Good luck with the book. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. You're listening to a podcast from the Radio America Network. Find more podcasts of your favorite shows at RadioAmerica.org.
This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Say what? Say what? Say what? One more time. Say what? Say what? Say what? One more time. Say what? The portion of Liberty Nation where we unveil some of the most wacky, astonishing, and damnable things uttered by politicians and the chattering class. And Hillary Clinton now says she'll be even more aggressive on immigration reform than the man she hopes to replace in the White House, saying this week she would go even further than Barack Obama, which is frankly a bit hard to figure given that the president has in the eyes of many, if not most observers, as well as one federal court, exceeded his authority with his unilateral decree not to deport illegal immigrants. So what would Hillary do beyond that? It's a mystery other than to continue to transparently pander to Hispanic voters, which she certainly did in contrasting her new position to that of Republicans. Not a single Republican candidate announced or potential is clearly and consistently supporting a path to citizenship, not one. When they talk about legal status, that is code for second class status. So I will fight for comprehensive immigration reform, and if Congress continues to refuse to act as president, I would do everything possible under the law to go even further. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting that she would use the word consistently about those Republicans because, you know, you may say maybe she's not pandering. Maybe she really believes most illegal immigrants ought to have a clear path to citizenship. But then you remember... This is a Clinton. So parsing words and changing your position for strictly political purposes is standard operating procedure. And you know what? It's no different in this case when you consider that Hillary said precisely the opposite about illegal immigrants when she was a senator. I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. Certainly, we've got to do more at our borders, and people have to stop employing illegal immigrants. Come up to Westchester, go to Suffolk and Nassau counties, stand in the street corners on, in Brooklyn or the Bronx. You're going to see loads of people waiting to get picked up. Now, that doesn't sound too different than, than the right-wing Republicans now does it? Of course, the GOP is now using that soundbite to demonstrate Hillary's uh, a flexibility when it comes to the issues. But Hillary certainly understands that among Republicans, at least Jeb Bush, a fluent Spanish speaker with a Mexican wife, and Marco Rubio, a young Cuban-American, stand a good chance of appealing to a whole lot more Hispanic voters than Mitt Romney, who picked up only about a quarter, 27% of the Hispanic vote in 2012. And so she's tacking as far to the left as possible and taking a position that by creating more Hispanic voters and thus at least theoretically uh, increasing her own chances for election and re-election. Okay, so Hillary's now reversed her position 180 degrees on illegal immigrants, understanding the, that, uh, you know, the Hispanic population in some key swing states like Florida and Nevada has increased by four, five, six percent just since 2012. But what Hillary has yet to do and what she'll be forced to do eventually is to actually face the music about the Clinton Foundation. But this week, on two separate occasions, her husband did so, but it was a Bill Clinton we hadn't seen before, seemingly unprepared, winging it, 
as he told one interviewer that he may be getting half a million bucks for a speech, but he's generous and, well, listen. I give 10% of my revenue off the top every year to the foundation. And I've given 10% more to pay my bills. The people, I work hard on this. I spend a couple hours a day just doing the research. So she's now running for president. Will you continue to give speeches? Oh, yeah. I got to pay our bills. (laughs) Got to pay those bills with those $500,000 speeches that he gives all over the world. Um, I think we can all relate to that, especially those little people Hillary says she'll champion in this race. You know, is it just me or is it hard to believe that's the same slick Willie we came to know over all those years in the White House when he seemed to be able to talk his way out of anything? But later in the week, the former president doubled down by saying the failure of the Clinton Foundation to report thousands of foreign donations was just a bookkeeping error. And the man who joined us earlier, who wrote the book on the foundation, Peter Schweitzer, is just uh, just grabbing at straws. That was just an accident. People refile their taxes all the time. We reported all the donations from all the governments and the private sources. And last year, for some reason, nobody really understands, they were put together. Everybody admits that we are the most transparent of all the presidential foundations and more transparent than a lot of private foundations. Even the guy who wrote the book apparently had to admit under questioning that he didn't have a shred of evidence for this. He just sort of thought he'd throw it out there and see if it'd fly. Well, he and did it actually, won't fly. He did, he, it won't fly. Is, is that what you say? It won't yeah, fly? it won't fly. Well, I guess the voters uh, will actually decide that, but Hillary has now sent, a, sent out about every surrogate she could to address the facts in the Peter Schweitzer book. But until she takes on the issue herself, until she answers all the questions herself, this scandal is going to linger. And more damning facts are highly likely to keep dribbling out for who knows how long. But at least Hillary now has a challenger. Whether he's a serious one is certainly open to question. He's Bernie Sanders, self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist from Vermont, actually an independent senator who caucuses with the Democrats and brings a strong progressive economic populist message to the race. For most Americans, their reality is that they're working longer hours for lower wages, an inflation-adjusted income, they're earning less money than they used to years ago, despite a huge increase in technology and productivity. So all over this country, I've been talking to people, and they say, how does it happen? I'm producing more, but I'm working longer hours for low wages. My kid can't afford to go to college. I'm having a hard time affording health care. How does that happen? While at exactly the same time, 99% of all new income generated in this country is going to the top 1%. We can't continue having a nation in which we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major nation on earth at the same time as we're seeing a proliferation of millionaires and billionaires. Well, a lot of that you probably can't argue with. But, of course, the question is whether all of that is because of too much government control or not enough. Bernie Sanders clearly thinks we have not had nearly enough. 
And he will have some appeal to the left flank of his party that really wanted Elizabeth Warren to run, something that appears unlikely to happen. But Senator Sanders said one thing I think we can all agree with about the media saying presidential politics is not a game. This is not the Red Sox versus the Yankees. This is the debate over major issues facing the American people. Honest people, my conservative friends, differ with me, and that's fine. That's called democracy. That's a good thing. But I would hope, and I ask the media's help on this, allow us to discuss the important issues facing the American people, and let's not get hung up on political gossip or all the other soap opera aspects of modern campaigns. I wish that could happen. I hope that could happen. It should happen. But unfortunately, it won't. We'll take a quick break and then return with Chewing the Fat. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. fat we just sit around and kick around some stories affecting your liberty trending topics with scott cosenza of one generation away found on the web at onegen.org that's o-n-e-g-e-n.org applying america's founding principles to the issues of today and scott is also a constitutional lawyer which means we're going to dig right into the nsa court decision hey now <laughs> hey now yes well you know you're a lawyer and you play one on tv or on the radio anyway uh and so you are uniquely positioned at least in this room to comment on the court ruling uh, that the nsa's phone surveillance program is illegal as opposed to unconstitutional. So one of my questions to you is, does the fact that this was ruled illegal by a federal court perhaps provide the momentum for the question of constitutionality to come before federal courts in, in more rapidly than it might have? Some, yes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think it's important for everybody to think about that Federal courts traditionally, state courts as well, but especially federal courts, try to make decisions in the most narrow terms possible. So if they are presented with a question and they can rule on part of that question that is a very narrow ruling that only affects the people involved at a very specific level, that's their preference so that mm -hmm. they, don't gr they don't engage in sort of broad policy making. And generally speaking, we as the citizenry like that, right? The, the rules aren't supposed to be set by the courts. They're better set by the political process. So it's, it's appropriate for them to be narrow in their decision making. And in this case, the three judge panel out of New York, second, um, the Second Circuit ruled unanimously that the federal government rested their authority for collecting the data on Section 215 of the Patriot Act. And mm -hmm. all this ruling says is that that is not okay. Section 215 of the Patriot Act gives no such grant of authority, and they are absolutely behaving illegally if they continue to gather the, um, gather the information under that grant of authority. Now, it didn't say that there are no other potential grants of authority or that it's unconstitutional, as you mentioned, but certainly it's not a good ruling uh, for the feds. Well, is this something where uh, they could cite other chapter and verse in the law to justify this? Are they uh, Will the NSA now be required to find 
a new justification for continuing the program as it is. I mean, if they can't use the Patriot Act, then they what will can have, they use? They will have to uh-huh. if they decide to go forward with it unless they challenge this particular opinion. They can do so in two ways. They can either ask the Fourth Circuit to rehear the case in what's called an en banc review, which is where all of the sitting mm-hmm. justices of the Fourth Circuit will then sit. As and opposed to just one. Just, or no, just the three-judge panel. Three judge right. panel right. Or they can appeal directly to the United States Supreme Court, and then we'll have to wait and see, will the Supreme Court grant that appeal, and then how will they rule on it? So the wheels of justice do turn slowly, but they will turn, and we'll, we'll see. Speaking of the wheels of justice, let's talk about death penalty cases in Texas, uh, where a new bill would ban testimony by so-called snitches. And this is based on a troubling track record of jailhouse snitches uh, laying low, uh, convicted, um, well, convicts. People are convicted Tim, I think this crimes. is a really good um, trend, uh, if you will, um, because so many bad convictions are made by the use of jailhouse informants, and they're done basically with the promise that some one person is going to get out of jail if he tells on this other person. And as you can imagine, what that would lead to is what it, what we have today, which is rampant lying. OK, so the jailhouse informant knows the prosecutor, a criminal with no incentive not to go for any right. deal that's offered him, who's already serving jail time, who has a chance to reduce that jail time or prison right. time, I should say, by by cooperating with investigators. Why why would he not do that? And how would any judge in his right mind take seriously the testimony of criminal snitches with every incentive to lie. We've seen some pushback against that, and that's what this is about. This is legislation that says that, in at least in capital cases, they're going to su- significantly restrict the use of that testimony. And I think that that is a real boon towards liberty because it's so often tainted evidence. We have many cases, including the Commonwealth of Virginia, where we both sit, whereby prosecutors put up uh, witnesses where – I think that all fair minds would know that they should they should be very skeptical of that of that testimony, but it helps them make their cases and attain higher political office. And so we have the case which we do we do now, which is these snitches are often put forth to give testimony. Well, now we have an interesting case uh, out in Kansas, which is again testing the sort of bounds of the gradual legalization of marijuana that's occurring in this country and the tension between. Places where it is legal, legal and, and, and not. Both of us agree that within five to ten years, it'll be pretty much legal even for recreational use in a majority of the country, if not a supermajority. But in Kansas, a medical marijuana activist home was searched after her 11-year-old son challenged anti-pot propaganda at school. The child was taken by the state because presumably her mother used medical marijuana his mother yes um and it is a profoundly disturbing story uh this woman uses marijuana to aid the devastating symptoms of crohn's disease which she suffers which from. which is an incredibly painful disease that's my understanding yes. as well uh and one in which people who live in 23 states can use uh the cannabis oil to treat and what happened was during a dare presentation the drug abuse resistance education project federally funded and state funded, which often tells lies about drugs, especially marijuana. It it historically has used misinformation to try to make marijuana seem much more sort of devilish and dangerous than than it is. And in fact, they've sued and lost uh, many, many times in the courts because 
of publishers who have laid bare the the lies of the D.A.R.E. program. So anyway, there was a police officer giving a D.A.R.E. demonstration, and her well-educated young uh, 11-year-old, I believe, son was rebuffing many of the points that the police officer made. And, of course, he realized that he was dealing with a a person who had been educated about uh, marijuana's uh, benefits as well as its uh, drawbacks. Didn't like it. Um, inquired and questioned the boy about what drug use may be going on at the home, went in and tried to interview the woman. She declined to be interviewed. A judge signed a search warrant at the police officer's request. They went in, found weed, and because they found marijuana, well, that was a good reason for them, they thought, to have Child Protective Services remove the child from the home. So instead of being in a, in a home where he was supervised and didn't have a, didn't use marijuana, but it was perhaps nearby and it was his mom's medicine, a loving, by all accounts, loving, caring mother, he's now in state custody, uh, which is all to the benefit, you know, of the youth in, in, in this case, well, you would sleeping th- in the foster home or wherever. Yeah. You would think that there would be some more measured response, but you'd also think that this kind of story will serve to promote marijuana legalization. You, you know, it's the same thing with gay marriage, where you have this tension between states where it's legal and states where it's not, and what's to be recognized in those states. We don't have the same full faith and credit issue with marijuana, but we're seeing, for example, where Colorado, where it's legal to sell and use recreational marijuana, that the surrounding states are now considering action against Colorado for the number of people who are buying it there and taking it through the surrounding states. Uh, just one other point I want to add, just sort of going back to to the case of Ms. Banda, Shona Banda, who is the woman who's had her son stolen from her. You know, we don't have a system in this country where people can get a free legal representation for this kind of thing. So she will now be forced to spend the majority of her meager resources on trying to get her kid back and she has a uh, an ex-husband who also shared custody with with uh her and he the boy was taken from him as well um so it's a real tragic case and i hope that the citizens of uh of kansas decide that it's not a good idea to take somebody's kid under these circumstances i think that you'd get an overwhelming uh, overwhelming support for that uh at least here in 2015 Hidden cash. I love this one uh, because the way that you uh, we write notes back and forth and you wrote me hidden cacti, C-A-C-T dash E-Y-E, clever double entendre about Paradise Valley, Arizona, installing cameras in cacti, which is the plural form of cactus. It deals with local governments secretly installing cameras that are license plate readers that then track the movements of all of the people who drive through that town. The funding for the program was not passed as a surveillance program, but merely a $2 million technology upgrade that the the council passed last year. And the problem is that what we have is the government agents want to spy on the people of the town. And they didn't go and say, listen, we think this is an important measure for public safety. Let's debate this. Let's hash it out. Let's decide what's going to happen with that data. Can I go pull now a record of my neighbor to find out every time where he comes and goes? There's been no discussion about this sort of thing. It was done sort of in the dark of night, surreptitiously for the reasons that we all know. The police officer The police department lied about it, okay, in multiple instances, and we're thankful to Fox 10, uh, the network who really dug up the story here. And it's important for states to enact protections 
because what we're going to have our lo- every local government now is going to have their own data collection that mm-hmm. is going to have to be reconciled with people's privacy rights. And it's better that this is done at the state level and where citizens can debate and decide how this data is going to be managed and discoverable. I've got to say, as an observation, sadly, the video cow is out of the barn and the barn door is closed because video is so much everywhere all the time now. Everything's being surveilled. You know, again, the Fourth Amendment is uh, largely a dead letter. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for joining us today. We've come to the conclusion of this program, but we'll be back at you next week. Same time, same station. Till then... This is Tim Donner saying, stand up for liberty, and we'll see you next time on Liberty Nation. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.